The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 54 of the Ascent of Board Games, where we talk about an increasingly eclectic collection of games and hope that you still want to listen to us. If we sound a little tired right now, it's because we were halfway through recording this episode before we realized that I wasn't picking up any audio. So we're going to do this again, and it'll be fine. I just want to point out, we're going to do this again for the third time, technically? Yeah, yep. Wait, what? <laughs> the first yeah, one was only time. like 30 seconds before Frank. Fair. Oh, yeah, you're right. Fair. Yeah, I had Fair. Yeah, yeah, but this one was a longer. So yeah, everyone's mad at me now, but it's fine. Episode 54, the cursed edition. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. There's a lot of cursed in this one, actually. Yeah, to be fair. <laughs> and I think part of the problem is that we're going sort of outside our comfort zone because we're talking about sports games, which we are not the most sporty people. We're definitely on the nerd end of the jock nerd spectrum. I love sports now. Yes, yes. We don't understand what's happened to Mike. I think Mike particularly loves golf now. <laughs> I mean, it's the one true sport. Mm, yes. I mean, they, did, they did announce that Arkham Horror Golf Game next week, so... <laughs> Mm-hmm. That probably mm-hmm. explains it. That sounds like a challenge, Mike. We'll do it. <laughs> Get wait, designing, wait. Frank. I think I got this. It's the horror of the sand dunes. Mm. Ah, okay. The green. No, I got. Uh, we'll workshop that. We'll come back. All right. Yeah, that. yeah. I'm giving Richard a call right now. Walk, <laughs> Walk before you run, Mike. Walk before you run. <laughs> So yeah, we're talking about games that are about things that we don't often participate in. Just to lay it out out front, when we talk about sports games, we're specifically excluding fighting games. So like boxing stuff is not in here because we've already talked about fighting games. Also, racing games are kind of their own separate category episodes. We're not going to do horse racing and track and field and any of that stuff here. This is strictly sports-ish. It's interesting because I kind of fall into, let's say, three large categories. Right, there's the hardcore simulation games, there's the do dexterity game stuff, and then there's kind of like thinking outside the box and giving you something that's like at a high level feels kind of sporty without being specifically like, hey, bound by the rules of the game, right? Because both the simulations and in some ways the dexterity stuff very much tries to follow at least some of the rules that the sport exists in, you know? Yeah, because a lot of them were trying to take people who are fans of the sport and get them into fans of board games. And then more recently, there are more where there are people who are fans of board games. Let's get into a sports element of it. So it's interesting to see how that evolves. But first, we're going to go to a game that hasn't evolved in over 100 years. And why would it need to? Why, indeed. Yeah, when you hit it perfectly in the first shot, uh, you really don't need to change anything. This would be originally 1921's Tip Kick by Carl Mayer, and I'm actually on the website of the still-existing company. It was apparently purchased by a guy named Edwin Meeg, who's a guy who kind of popularized it. That's a difficult word to say. <laughs> Tip Kick falls into the category of dexterity game. You're Basically, it's a two-player-only game. Each side is playing a soccer team or a football team, depending on what side of the world you're on. Mm-hmm. And you're really representing your entire team by two metal figurines. You have a metal goalie, and you have a metal kicker, or actually you have different types of kickers, but you'll have a, a kicker. 
the soccer ball is represented by a 14-sided die that's split in half. One team's color on one side, one team's color on the other side. Once you decide, you know, with a coin flip or whatever, who goes first, they'll position their kicker, they'll kick the ball, and whichever color is on the top of that die is whoever currently has possession of that ball. And essentially, you're going back and forth trying to kick the ball into the opponent's goal. The opponent is trying to block it with their goalie. What makes it a dexterity game is that these little metal figurines have plungers in their heads <laughs> for the kickers and uh, little tube plungers behind it on the goalies. The kickers, you tap the plunger on the top of the head and you can kick the ball forward or kick it to the side, depending on what type of kicker you've put down. And you're trying to get it into the opponent's goal, like a normal soccer game. And the goalie can move left or right, trying to block that shot. Yeah, the, the goalie has like this whole contraption you have to set yeah, up. Yeah, he's and attached it's like, to the goal. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> when you press left or right, it like takes your goalie through the motion of diving. And so there's this weird, like, mid-ground you can get where your goalie is frozen in mid-air, and I would argue the best position. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's wild. And, like, as with any game that gets a lot of popularity, I guess especially we'll see this in a couple of different sports games, you can get the figurines customized for your favorite teams, or even, in in some cases, your favorite players. Oh, no, 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 no. So there's a, a timer, a match timer, and you can get little separate sound chips. (laughs) <laughs> with the melody of national anthems for your set. It, it goes on and on. I'm looking through the accessories. It's like, oh my god, this is amazing. I want... Oh yeah. People who are oh, yeah. into this game are really into this game. Totally. Jason, I'm starting to question your commitment to Tipkick. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating that it still exists at this level, a game that was created in 1921. Like... Of all the things that we've come across, this is such a weird microcosm. It's very much like if you're a tick kip tick tip kick player, good lord, easy for mm. me to say. <laughs> you're just one of those people, right? And it's got all the things for you. I love they have little floodlights for your mm-hmm. little arenas. <laughs> so good. Honestly, this is I think the predecessor to your Warhammers and that kind of thing. Because you've got little miniatures that you can get custom painted in whatever team you're rooting for, and you can Add all the accessories to make it look more and more realistic. It was an early tap into that same addictive vein. Yeah, and I mean, if you go on their website, there's an unbelievable amount of options of things you could buy. Even an entire, as Joe pointed out previously, there's a, a for pros section on their on their website for people who are really serious about it. Yeah, the pro kickers have cybernetic legs. It's it's weird. It, uh, <laughs> it gives you more control, you see. For sure, for sure. Oh, here we go. I found a description of the kickers. They've got the pro kicker strike, pro kicker loop, and pro kicker all around. Ooh. So I guess that's straight, curved, and maybe some of each? <laughs> I don't know. Like, honestly, looking at the picture, they all look the same to me, but I guess there's some, something different about them. Yeah. Well, it's like yeah. each of their feet is sculpted in a slightly different way, right? Like, one of them had, like, a paddle-like foot, one of them was, like, a shovel-like foot, and the other was, I don't know, some sort of horrible amalgamation of human anatomy? Like, It's a weird mix, too, Like, because, like, you can buy... Figures that are pre-painted, or you can buy figures that aren't painted and paint them yourselves. You get to kind of choose how you approach Tip Kick as a person. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. <laughs> you gotta paint your own. Like, Jason, give me your Tip Kick figures and I'll paint them for you. <laughs> they also sell official Ravel enamel model paints for painting your own. Of course, just to be of course. Complete. 
I will say that as of 2011, they do have female players available. So uh, you can get your, your women's soccer on. That feels a little late. I mean, <sighs> you're not wrong, but honestly, the game's was 90 years old at that point. It was probably set in its ways, but... Uh, anyway. Oh my gosh, you can buy a target practice box that's 20 euros <laughs> for practicing <laughs> your shots. <laughs> so that's another thing for us to check. We're probably going to include some YouTube links in this show notes here, and I think we need to try and find a tip kick championship tournament so we can see Oof. people playing this for real. Oh, that's uh, terrifying. We obviously aren't very good at it because we just fiddle around with it for a bit. But uh, it's fascinating. 100 years later. You know, one of the things that I think really makes it still a game so long ago is that the core conceit of, right, you having this D12 that is half one color and half the other color. And when you do your manual dexterity on it, it is one of the two colored sides is up. And that is the person who now has control of the ball is, I think, totally fascinating, right? Because it's the right mix of, there's a little bit of random there, but also with a lot of skill, you can accommodate for the random and just keep the ball as you kind of move down the field with it. But when you're first playing, it's a lot of like, oh, well, we'll see who owns the ball next kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it does bother me because it suggests that possession in football is random, but... (laughs) No, they suggested it's skill-based, Brian. They suggested it's skill-based. Rolling a D12, or excuse me, a D14 is skill-based? I guess that makes sense. That's just a skill Jason and I don't have. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You don't roll a D12 with your hand. You roll it with the foot of your kicker. Ah, yes. Just to be clear on a couple points, Joe, it is a D14. It's not even a D12. But also, like, I think, Brian, if you zoom out from the game of football to a statistics level and you take a sampling, control of the ball might appear random at any given moment. Uh, So it's like. Not if you get the skills of your players right. The game tip kick is unconcerned with how the ball changed possession and more just just the fact that it did (laughs) it did well i don't know about you tip kick is all well and good but if i'm playing a sports game i want a lot of detailed statistical representation of what actual players are doing Ooh, brian while doing that can you give us like a 20 year time jump i can give you a nine year time jump and then cover about 60 years of developments Excellent. So this is going to be a whirlwind tour of what we sort of consider the statistic simulationist and fantasy sports angle of things. In 1930, a guy named Clifford Van Beek developed and released something called National Pastime, which is sort of the first sports simulation game. Basically, you had a lineup of cards representing your actual Major League Baseball players. And basically, the pitchers don't matter in this game. You basically roll two dice, look up the batter's card to get the results of what that actually does. And then there are like five pages of charts to look at, depending on where there are runners, what bases they're on, and what you roll. And then you'll get a result like ground hit to second base, one runner to third, other out at second, batter doubled at first. So you're literally just playing it out based on these little statistical rolls on the batter's stats. I'm not saying it was a great game, but it was a very early version of the detailed statistical approach that kind of took over a lot of sports simulations for the next 100 years or so. After that came something called APBA Pro Baseball, which is kind of an evolution of the same process. That was one where you would basically get a lot of detailed cards for individual players 
draft things around. Pitching makes more of a difference now. You're comparing pitcher stats to batter stats, and you have cards for probably every major league player at the time. In 1960, a professor by the name of uh, William A. Gamson started what he called the Baseball Seminar League. Basically, people would draft rosters of real-life baseball players and compare stats at the end of the season. This is the first what we consider fantasy sports game. It was never published. It was just something he did with his friends at the University of Michigan. And one of the guys who was a student of one of the people who played that was a guy named Daniel Okrent, who we'll come back to in just a second. In 1962, some folks with the Oakland Raiders got involved and created what we would recognize as the first fantasy football game where they drafted players, compared their stats, scored based on what they did in a game. It was a league that they started in 62, was still active at least in 2015, so it's obviously got legs. It's probably become kind of a tradition among that franchise. And then in 1980, the aforementioned Daniel Okrent created what he called Rotisserie League Baseball, which is the first really successful modern fantasy baseball rules. It was named after a restaurant they met at in New York, Again, they would all draft players. They would score based on those players' stats after each game. The thing that really made this take off was that in 1981, there was a Major League Baseball strike. So there were a lot of sports writers who didn't have anything to talk about. So a lot of them started talking about this rotisserie league baseball thing they were playing. And it was in the early to mid-80s that it really took off and became a national pastime. And suburban dads were never the same. It's true. It's true. The other line that kind of happened in parallel with those is you had two kind of main series of statistic-based ones, which were the Stratomatic games and the Status Pro games. Stratomatic Baseball, which is the first one to come out, came in 1962, designed by Hal Richmond and published by the Stratomatic Game Company. And this was the first one that was really set up so that you would get every year a new set of cards for all the players that were active on all the pro teams that year. You would do a lot of very detailed decisions. You know, are you trying to steal a base? Do you do intentional walks? A lot of very detailed baseball decisions. There is now a computer version as well, and they are still releasing new cards every year. You can go to their website and see their hilarious efforts to say, here, look, new players. Here they are, all the new ones for this year. Please buy them. So they also released a a pro football game and a few others. All of these seem to have baseball comes first, and then football, and then maybe some other sports. So I guess that talks about how America's sports preferences were at the time. Plus, baseball is always a stats game, as Joe pointed out during our first pass through this recording. It's all about the stats, so baseball is a natural fit for that. Then in the 1970s, Jim Barnes and Avalon Hill came out with the Status Pro games, baseball, basketball, football, etc., which is a fairly similar setup where you are comparing the stats of the individual players. You compare the pitcher to the batter and, you know, have a bunch of charts to look up. Man, there were a lot of charts in these games. But so here's the thing, though. Which one of them has lasted the longest? Because I can tell you right now, Stratomatic still has a website. And if you go look at their copy for the baseball sheets for uh, last year for 2022, you can buy them right now. They're in stock, 68 bucks. You're good to mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. Status Pro, I will have you know, does still have a website. It is DelphiForums.com. Oh, um, so they're still technically around. Yeah, Avalon Hill apparently gave up on this one a while back, but there are still folks producing the player cards for each season. 
So that's basically where we are on the history of deep statistics, sports games, and also fantasy baseball and football. The fact that Stratomatic stuff still exists and is still as active as it is, is utterly fascinating to me. Well, I think it's along the same lines as something like Tip Kick. You know, once you get into it, it's one of those games that I think requires a certain amount of commitment to really get into it. And once you're in there, you're in deep and you're never getting out. The call to action on a lot of this marketing speak in these like, hey, here's the 2022 hockey season (laughs) is utterly fascinating. It's like, hey, here are the players who are really good this season. I almost wonder if that's even necessary, because it's like if you're playing Stratomatic hockey, you're going to get the new season. And if you're not, you're probably not. I think it's just normal marketing speak. It's like they probably said, hey, if we spend five dollars on a marketing spiel here. We'll sell to one more person, and that makes it worth it, right? Fair enough. It's like, oh, I'm on the fence, but oh, shoot. Sorry, I don't have the most recent one up. I'm just going to keep saying words. Don't (laughs) stop. Oh, God, why? But if you're like, oh, man, but like, it has Aaron Judge, and he had a home run record this year. I mean, I don't know if I can hold back. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the best part of this episode, is hearing us try to make sports references. It's great. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't have any idea who Aaron Judd is. And he's apparently a guy who has a home run record. He's real good at hitting the ball. Ooh. Right now, there are a small subset of our listeners who are screaming in disbelief. I mean, I think that's just always I true. Mean, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, good point. Aaron Judge is, of course, the New York Yankees outfielder who broke Roger Maris's 61-year-old record for most home runs in a season. We apologize. One other oldie I wanted to talk about before we move on into more civilized games is Electric Football from 1948, designed by Norman Sass, originally published by Tudor Games. This was a staple in the Christmas toy catalogs for decades when I was growing up. It is a terrible game, but everyone wanted a copy. The field is basically a vibrating metal plate. And before the play, you take your 11 little football men, this is American football, although I don't see why there couldn't be a soccer version, you adjust little dials on them, which theoretically will control the direction in which they move, you set them up in a formation, you turn the board on, and they slowly vibrate forward and crash into each other, and go wandering off. There's always Steve, who just kind of runs in little circles on the side for no apparent reason. Yeah. There is the weird plastic multi-limbed triple threat quarterback who can throw a ball, put a dexterity element into it. It's terrible. We're going to include a video of a quote-unquote championship of this game. And apparently if you spend a lot of time on it, you can get some degree of control on it. But it is not a good game for the average user. But boy, was it popular because everybody saw it and it looked super cool and wanted to do it. So, Brian, I don't know if you're aware of this, Mm -hmm. but there are a bunch of leagues of electric football on the internet. I am not surprised, because there's a generation of people who grew up on that. Not gonna lie, I think I had a version of this growing up. I do vaguely remember having those football players moving around on a board, Mm -hmm. in essence, just shaking. Oh, yeah, there were baseball, horse racing, sandy horse How racing. would you do baseball with this? Oh, my God. <laughs> you use them to run the bases. I don't know huh. about the baseball part. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You'd almost have to track them at that point, like put a little indention down into it. Yeah, so there is there's a little track. Off. can't leave the track. Oh, yes. 
Sorry, I'm just watching an electric football world championship and watching these players run in huge circles down the field with the ball. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> anyway, we'll include links so you guys can enjoy this yourselves. <laughs> so that's electric football. All right. Mike, please take us to a more civilized sport. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the one true sport, golf. We're going to start our golf adventure with 1966 Thinking Man's Golf. This is made by Fedrix A. Herschler and produced by 3M. And I do hope that everybody's got their notebooks out and are taking notes because there will be a quiz later. <laughs> Y'all, Thinking Man's Golf is chart consultation the golf game. <laughs> so you have a board that is wrapped in plastic and you've got a grease pen. That's really all you need to play golf. You're going to look at the distance that you have to hit your marker and then pick the direction in which you swing. Of course. You should check the wind direction first, obviously. Oh, for sure. And speed. Oh, yeah. And speed. Exactly. That's rolling on a chart. Before you swing, we must simulate licking your finger to see what the wind is doing by rolling dice, obviously, which does imply that the wind in this universe changes constantly you do it once per hole oh once per hole yes. okay that makes more sense from there you are going to roll 2d6 consult the chart by comparing the result of your die roll to the club that you're using and it will tell you how far your ball is going to go you then of course must compensate for wind because that's going to push it left or right or even forward or backwards and once you've done all that, you get out your little plastic sheet full of holes, put it in the direction you are placing your ball, and then make a mark where your ball lands using your grease pen. It's very reminiscent of like wargaming, like heavy-duty wargaming, or advanced Dungeons & Dragons. That was the one with all the charts, right? I mean, yes. Here, here's the thing. There were decades in which charts were what games were made from. Uh-huh. All the classic old war games and everything else, they were just entirely made of charts because cards were expensive to produce and the ones you did get were usually terrible. I know last time Frank mentioned the old Tales of the Arabian Nights and there were a lot of games in that ilk that had these sort of yeah. punch cut cards that you would punch out of a sheet and you could still see the perforated edges through the entire life of the game. Oh, that was if you were lucky for right, exactly. charts covering half the map board in any war game. I've even got some like adventure games from that period. And you know, there'll be like pages and pages of charts. Yeah, that's that's what games were made of. You kids today got it too good, you don't even know. One of the things I really like about Thinking Man's Golf is that the board itself that is wrapped in plastic is also a sheath that wraps the board game. Yeah, the, the box is covered in the board. That was totally a thing. A lot of the 3M games came with those wraparound boards. Got versions of Regatta, Speed Circuit, etc. with those boards. As well, you got the Akinto album games, where the uh, where it was like a fold-out album with the board on both sides of the giant foldable, like a double album cover. And then you had counters and things on the inside. I'm just going to say that my copy of Jurassic Park Legacy came with a board game sheath, and it didn't do nothing. <laughs> Fair enough. Wow, I didn't know board game sheaths were a thing. Okay. I mean, what else would you call that? A wraparound board, maybe? Ah, totally. No, 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 because the Jurassic Park one was not a board. It was nothing. I believe the collectors refer to that as a slipcover, yes. A slipcover. Oh, yeah. There okay. you go. Okay. 
But yeah, there was also a thinking man's football. There was a prototype of a thinking man's basketball. So it was obviously something they wanted to pursue, but then they... Yeah, totally. I have too many golf games. I also have too many games. I mean, that's One true. of which is called Slapshot or Phantoms of the Ice. This was published in 1982 by originally Columbia Games, which is a Canadian war game company. Tom Daglish, basically the lead designer for most of Columbia Games and a whole bunch of his friends. This is the Wargamers kind of doing what they would call a beer and pretzels game. Mm. In this case, it's a beer and beer and beer and more beer and maybe some pretzels to kind of give some salt to the beer. Right. So this game is a really silly hockey game and very, very simple. Basically, you have uh, some forwards, some defensive and some goalie cards that are numbered one half through nine. We'll talk about Tiny Tim and the one half in a second. And you have six cards that represent your team that are random, and someone definitely has a better hand than you do. And on your turn, you can choose to draft, basically take one of your cards, shove it on the bottom of the deck, and get a better card, hopefully. But invariably, it's a worse card. Or you can trade with somebody else, in which case you randomly take their worst card, and they randomly take your best card, because <laughs> that's how life that's works. That's how random works. That's yeah. totally how random works. Or you can challenge them to a game, in which case you line up, choose exactly how you want to go for your order of cards, then plop them down and play war. Whoever has the highest number gets a goal. There are a few special rules. Goalies often block shots against higher numbers, and the goalie cards are lower numbers, but they can't score goals themselves. Tiny Tim scores against goalies, because, except for his one half, because he's useless unless he's against <laughs> a goalie. Crawls under their legs or something. Uh, that's it. That is really the game. You have a limit on how many games you can play in and uh, go. I think the winner of a game gets a card randomly taken to like make their deck a little weaker. But it's random, so it'll usually be the worst card. <laughs> yeah, and then you give back a you know card of your choice or something. Mm -hmm. There is the kind of balancing mechanism for the winner-loser. But it's a really clever game with really silly, silly characters. And got republished lots. Alan Moon published, republished his Phantoms of the Ice under his White Wind label. Amigo picked up that version and put a billion expansions in German only. Uh, since it's a tiny little card game, essentially. Sure, sure. And it really is interesting that this comes from Columbia Games, because these are a bunch of hardcore war game guys. They've done a lot of very well-regarded, deep, oh, yeah. detailed war game simulations. And then it's this. got wooden blocks. It's, you know, it's descended <laughs> from a Columbia game. Right. They were really the ones who pushed that kind of fog of war. And actually, the Columbia games, though, are not overly complex. They're surprisingly simple. They're easier than a lot of freaking Euro games now. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, you know, I think the original Napoleon might have had four or five pages of rules. That's not bad. So, yeah. Interestingly, they're also the people who made Harn, which is a super detailed fantasy RPG setting. It's like, <laughs> which you know, is still being published. Yeah, it's no, still getting exactly. added to. It's, yeah. You know, it's the sort of thing where, you know, you'll have the description of this country, and here's the name of the peasants that live in this one particular village. It's All extraordinarily detailed. Everything you ever needed. <laughs> yeah. And lots of stuff that you didn't need. But you might. You bet you might. If your players go somewhere you weren't planning for, you know who lives there. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So that was Slapshot. So, okay. Enough of this non-dice rolling, non-chart referencing game. <laughs> Let's get back to the true fantasy league. 
that allow us to do everything that we want. And clearly that fantasy league is Blood Bowl by Jarvis Johnson, published by Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. Just a little company, maybe. Just a little company, them. little company. Well, they were at the time, but they've come a long way. They've come yeah. a long way. And so obviously it takes the great pun of what if instead of fantasy league, it was fantasy league. Uh, I don't get it. I can't help you then. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Functionally, you can play teams from any of the Warhammer races, right? You, ogres or Skaven or Nurgle or Orcs or Undead or whatever, whatever you want. And it's functionally a miniatures game. It leaves a lot of similar mechanics to kind of how all of Games Workshop's games work, right? Like each of your players will have an armor save. They'll have how far they can move. They'll have how good they are throwing the ball. They'll have, probably have a special ability or two. And it's really about getting the ball across the field and scoring it with all of the fun nonsense that's <laughs> happening. You know, and much like normal football, right? You might have traps and you might try to kill your opposing players or teleport them out of the arena or play inside a dungeon. Yeah. Create yeah. three extra balls and make all of those also scorable. You know, normal football stuff. Exactly. You'll get teams like elves who are very much clever at passing the ball and running and evading tackles and, like, doing regular football scoring things. Then you have teams like Orcs who want to just break their opponents until they can't play anymore. Seems like a solid way to win a game. I mean, it is in Blood Bowl. It's a very popular game. It's still played to this day. They still print it to this day. Yeah, it's a Games Workshop miniatures game, so the miniatures are gorgeous. You can get everything you need, not only for the team, but you can get cheerleaders and referees and, you know, all sorts of little accessories and stuff. Yeah, but what if I don't want to buy a bunch of minis and paint them? Who are you and what have you done with Mike? Then you can buy the kids version at Barnes & Noble. No, isn't this also just a computer game? There is a digital version and a Blood Bowl 2 is quite good. They recently came out with a Blood Bowl 3, which is not good. It needed a lot more playtesting and baking, but 2 is solid. It's a simulation of the board game, so you still need to be good at rolling dice. <laughs> well, we're tuned in. Yeah, I know. Well, we should play against each other. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's the a draw every time. Exactly. No, just all of our players spontaneously die at the end of the first play. <laughs> and then game over. Y'all have got it's enough time for game. another game. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was, and still is, Blood Bowl. So back to the one true story. Oh, God. We've moved past our charts of the past, and we've moved on to tiny, horrifying figurines of the past. Because, y'all, we're going to take the concept of tip kick that we talked about back in 1921 and apply it to a golf game in 2000s. So Golf Master is developed by Oliver Bolton and Rolf Rockers. I'm sorry. And is produced by Gold Cyberg Spiel. Gold Zebra. Called Zeber. Gold Zeber. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Gold uh-huh. Zeber. There you go. This game consists of normal polygon boards that you piece together to make a, a golf course. And then you put your golf ball onto the tee. You put your little figurine of a, a man hunching over a club over that golf ball. And then you twist his back into oh, a God. breaking position. <laughs> And let it rip so that it hits your golf ball along the board. I think my favorite part of this game is the golf balls are just the tiniest little, like, 
pom pom poms. Yeah. You can buy them at any arts and crafts store. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's fascinating. I wasn't as, as horrified by the figures as Mike was, but they do bend pretty far around before they make a swing. All the way. They bend all the way around. Yeah. And yeah, that bending at the waist, there's a bunch of golf dexterity games. Pretty much they all have the little chubby figure kind of bent over and all twist at the waist. I've got a bunch of golf dex games. The Arnold Palmer game, where you have the same little chubby guy at the end of a larger golf club, which is kind of a weird Inception thing going. (laughs) And a little trigger, and a little trigger, and a little trigger that makes him whap. Yeah, I mean, if you Google Arnold Palmer, the board game geek Arnold Palmer instead of Googling it, but yeah. It's amazing that this game actually functions with how light those pom-poms are. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just looked at the picture of this thing you're talking about. This is horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) It's so upsetting. I don't like this at all. (laughs) It kind of depends. Are you looking at... I'm talking about Arnold Palmer's Pro Shot Golf. Because there's Arnold Palmer Golf Game, Arnold Palmer's Pro Shot Golf, Arnold Palmer's Inside Golf, Arnold Palmer's Golf Card Game, and Arnold Palmer's Table Golf. Nope, it's Pro Shot. Okay. Yeah, 9064 one. Oh my god, I was not prepared for this picture. No, you're right, that is definitely <laughs> horrifying, okay? Alright, so if you are, once again, taking notes, because there will be a quiz on this later, Arnold Palmer, the famous half-tea, half-lemonade drink, is <laughs> infamously associated with golfing board games. <laughs> Oh, Lord. I love that he had to sign off on this in some way, shape, or form, because it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that's perfectly fine. No problem. Give me my money. Yeah, what I have exactly. has this picture of him using it, so extra inception. <laughs> He's actually seen it. <laughs> Arnold Palmer holding a golf club with a tiny Arnold Palmer who was holding a golf club. <laughs> uh, what is wrong with the games industry? I mean, that was 20 years ago. Why don't we see that anymore? Okay. (laughs) So, but that's not this one. This is Golf Masters, which is just little metal people whacking a golf ball around. Tennis Masters is a game by the same designers, and Gold Zebra produced it the same year. It's the better game, although it's unplayable by... (laughs) Humans? Anyone but me and Henning Kropek. I cannot pronounce Henning's last name. Easy for you to say. (laughs) I have played it successfully with one other person, and no one else can seemingly <laughs> play it. You have a, a little plastic tennis player who can actually hit the ball, either in the air or off the ground. And with a little tilt, you kind of flick it back, and the elasticness of the plastic lets you spring. Same little tiny puff balls, and a board that is made of some kind of felt, so the balls will stick to it when it hits and a big plastic net, and you basically, uh, you have a grid which indicates how far you can run to get to the ball, and the objects to hit the ball to where you're either let your opponent fail to hit the ball and drop it straight into the net, which is the most common thing in most players' games, or somehow hit it in a place that's outside their template that they can run to. And that's actually the game. Otherwise, it's just tennis. (laughs) <laughs> but the impressive part is just the ball flight. Once you play it a little bit, you can actually get pretty good and start to aim. And the ball will loop up to a foot or so above the net and then land on the tennis board. It looks bizarrely like tennis. Although an incredible amount of dexterity required. Oh, sure. 
Frank, when he was demonstrating this to us, showed a remarkable ability to get the shots going where he wanted until we turned the camera on. Yeah. At which point he just kept misfiring. Yeah. I did attempt to play with Frank. I think the actual problem I have with this is that it still applies the rules of tennis. So it's like when you are serving the ball, you still have to get it within the actual like service area. Oh, yeah. Which much easier in actual tennis than this thing. Agreed. It's Mostly hard. because this game is very much like, hey, what if every shot in tennis required you to scrape your racket along the floor in order to return the ball? I actually really like yeah. the, they have that, this wacky overlay you put after the ball gets hit to you, which indicates like where you can choose to hit it back from. Yeah. And it's totally wacky. Yeah, that thing made absolutely no sense because it was like, you put the center of the template where the ball is, and then you move the ball to the back of the template, and that's where your person is standing when they return to it. And yeah, it's I'm, weird. It was just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't I just be standing where the ball is? Why wouldn't I put my player No, that's where the ball the strikes the ground, which is Ugh. different than where you return it from. Of course. Yeah, they're clearly going for their simulationist dexterity game. It's obvious. <laughs> Which is a weird company. I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. lie. It does make the game incredibly odd. It's yeah. true. Yeah, it was a thing. Tennis Masters. Not the weirdest game we've come to today. Oh, no. Back to golf. So, I hope everybody's been paying attention because it is time for you to take your golf quiz. Oh, God. This Quiz is courtesy of Golf Profi, the 2002 AZA Spiel game created by Albrecht Nolt. I apologize for that pronunciation. Y'all, this game cannot be played, rules as written, unless you take no, like no, no, a 20 no, no. question quiz. No, 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 it's. Oh, no, the rules require you to take a quiz. You can play with the child clubs, but yes. you can't play with the real clubs until yes. you pass the quiz. Which is, true. frankly, even better. I think the first question we have in the quiz is, what is a group? Yep. Which so is, I hope, is not the most helpful question. <laughs> hope everybody was paying attention, because uh, all of the answers to this quiz can be found in our podcast today, but you really have to listen closely. <laughs> you gotta listen to the words we don't say. <laughs> They're in all the recordings that didn't get made. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sorry, folks. Uh, Sorry. Okay, so Golf Profi is... Uh, I would say this is even more war game than Thinking Man's Golf, because this one actually comes with a hex grid. It's got terrain, it's got, you know, all the dice that you'll need, it's got charts. Who doesn't love charts? <laughs> so you're going to find the T and whole of the course you're playing... By deciphering this hex grid, which is even more fascinating because all of the holes are overlapping each other in such a way that, like, really the only difference is where the T and hole begin and the obstacles that are in between them and how they path out. The clubs are represented by different sized dice. So, in that way, I guess this is actually a little bit more like Formula Day, mm -hmm. where, like, the different gears of your car are represented by the dice. And then you pick a direction, and then you roll the dice of the club that you're using and move that far in the direction you've chosen. 
Or possibly a direction up to 60 degrees away from where you were aiming. Yeah. Because there are slices. And before you roll, you pick, I think you basically play a round of left, right, center. And then you roll a directional die. And it's like, if it matches, you can choose to rotate if you want. If it doesn't match, you go in the direction of the dice or something. It can, dr- like, it can, dr- it can drift about 30 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. You choose which way you don't want it to hook. Yeah. You know, like in golf. Golf profi. You missed the best part. So there are like three. Yeah, probably. There are three different sets of clubs. And it's really designed as a solitaire game. That basically you have to achieve a certain score or have played a certain many of times. You get points every time you play based on total outcome, your campaign points. And basically as you get enough campaign points, you unlock the better set of clubs. Yeah. So you can choose from different sets of dice. Which are dice with better numbers on them. So Absolutely. what you're telling me is this is a legacy game, <laughs> and I've got my inventory of which clubs I can equip. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, see? See? Which is bonkers for that kind of game, yeah. Especially with all the custom dice. Yeah. And the quiz, the questions about the golf rules, not only are required to start play with decent clubs, but wasn't there also a thing like where you were in the rough it's like you had to chip out, or you could answer a question from the golf quiz. And no, been... <laughs> that was in Thinking Man's Golf. You had oh, okay. to, the advanced mode said, you know, when you're making a difficult shot, you had to explain how you would approach that what shot. What club you were using. And yeah, what, what club and, you know, how you would adjust your stance for that position. You know, it's just not <laughs> a board game unless you learn something about actual golf. Sure. All right, so that was Golf Profi. I uh, stuck a game in here without permission. Or of course you did, because Frank. I had to add one just halfway through the podcast. Mm-hmm. Say you're kind of interested in Blood Bowl, but you really don't want to deal with tables, games, anything other than dice and killing people, and just get down to the real core. You would go for 2003's Battle Ball. This is by Stephen Baker of Hero Quest and Space Crusade and Battle Masters and, you know, Heroescape, actually. And Craig Van S of, you know, also the same group of geeky gamers putting stuff onto shelves of Toys R Us when there was such a thing. Battle Ball comes with 22 fully painted miniatures and is like the secret best kids game ever. Basically, you have until two touchdowns are scored. Each half, one team starts with the ball. You know, if the ball carrier gets mangled, tackled, and the ball pops loose, the other team grabs it, potentially run it to the touchdown. And that's about it, except the way it works. So there are basically 8, 12, and 20-sided dice, which represent, or no, there's some four-sided dice in there. And the colors represent both the dice and the bases on your players. So that means, you know, if you're a light runner, you're rolling the big green 20-sided die for your movement. That's 1 to 20. If you encounter somebody, you each roll your basically the same die, and the lowest number gets to tackle the other. So basically that really slow guy who rolls a six-sided die is going to just mangle the 20-sided guy. (laughs) That's it. On your turn, you move a couple of guys and uh, try to get the ball past them. What's the uh, football die for? I think it's just to show the movement of the football. I think there's a little bit of spread for the football. Like a scattered eye kind of thing? Or a scattered eye, yeah. That's it. It's really simple. There's also Mr. Bistro added some advanced rules that some people played with. But it's actually, for that simple, stupid 
you know, tackle and everything. It's a decent little game with a lot of the flavor of Blood Bowl. Not, you don't get the detail and the injuries or the really serious thought processes of Blood Bowl. But if you want to dial that down to something simple, simple, that still gets the flavor and fast, Battle Ball was really good. It's still generally available, you know, it'll pop up in like, you know, thrift stores and things. But it's pretty easy to get. It wasn't highly sought after anything, which is sad, because it's a great game. Fascinating. That was Battle Ball. But I think we can't have that much violence without more thoughtful, slow-paced golf games. So we've had our fun with golf. We've, we've come a long way. We've done big, epic, sweeping war game golf. We've done Formula Day. Different drivers are different dice sizes. We've done spine-chilling dexterity games, but y'all, know what we haven't covered at the golf games? Roll and moo. So in 2003, uh, Box of Golf came out from Box of Golf Incorporated. This game was made by Stephen Barry and Robert LeBray, and just like its namesake, comes in actually a really nicely made wooden box with golf courses inside of it. Also made of wood, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. individual wooden boards. But it's like that nice, like, um, you don't really see them very often these days, but it's like that nice particle board, I guess. That always looked nice to me. It, it's fancy looking. Yeah, I think this is clearly a game that was designed to be put in golf course pro shops so people who have a lot of money could buy something that looked nice, regardless of what the game inside is like. I mean, it's for granddads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the game that your grandfather bought, put on his coffee table, so that when the kids came over, they'd have something to do together that was also golf-themed. Because, like, it is a roll-in move. You start the game by drawing out some colored gems from ye old colored gem shop, which are just counters, basically. Each one has a separate power that is definitely referenced in the rulebook, but you'll never remember them, so keep that rulebook open. <laughs> and then you roll some dice and move your player that far along the track, and then you get into the hole on par. You did it. <laughs> You've played box of golf. So you're dismissing it, I think, a little abruptly. Ooh. I am. It was, it was fine. Mike is a golf connoisseur, you see. Oh, yeah, totally. Because basically it's the person who gets there first, a few strokes, will get three points. You're actually competing against other people. And since each of your tokens is worth one point, it's that kind of when to push your luck, when to burn the tokens. Because the tokens are points and the winner gets three tokens. So there's a kind of, a, do I use it now? And the tokens certainly do useful things. So oh, yeah, there's totally. like one that you can either push forward or pull back a space on the board, which may be of interest because if you get to a certain point on some of the boards, you're either going to go into a trap or some boards have like two different paths that you can take. One that if you don't stop on exactly, you'll be forced to take the less optimal of the two paths. So there's there's certainly some decision space going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a golf game. It was very pretty. There's a special St. Andrew's edition where the holes are actually modeled after those of the ancient home of golf. Yeah. So very pretty stuff and also a game. Yep. Box of Golf. Not the best name, but, you know, we'll take it. It was appropriate, though. I mean, true, it was a box that contained golf. Yep. 
All right. Uh, I think we are on to Frank again. Oh, wow. Blood Bowl team manager. So uh, this is uh, 2011 Fantasy Flight Games designed by Jay Little, who did their weird Warhammer Fantasy and the Star Wars revamp of their D6 games. This was very briefly available from Fantasy Flight. I think it got one print and they had to pull it when they lost Mm -hmm. the Warhammer license. And it is criminal that this hasn't been reprinted in some other form. It takes the theme of Blood Bowl, you know, teams and everything, and distills it to a card game. And a really good, like, sports card game. In between rounds, you can draft guys and everything that are rated for the Blood Bowl kind of things, you know, how much damage they can do, or, you know, if they damage their star power, representing, you know, how many points and power you'll get, as well as affecting your income for the next round. But what happens here is you lay out kind of a little highlights reel of the week that represent players versus players. And this is a two to four player game. On your turn, you can, you know, draft or whatever, or just put one of your players onto the highlight reel in one of the spots. And that'll be contesting against another player that someone else may play later. And then you go through and you'll score the highlight reel. And, you know, get points and everything, potentially upgrade your roster and everything. The ones who are still alive. That's where that whole tackle thing comes in. Because, yeah, you can put up your big star power, fancy uber elf. And the other guy just puts a bruiser orc against him. Yay, he gets all the points. But, uh, yeah, you're not bringing him out for two or three more rounds (laughs) after the injuries. And yeah, you definitely track injuries on your players as well as uh, everything else. But it plays more like a team management game, except the fact that you're actually just kind of plopping your guys out, potentially doing the risk in order to get on the highlights reel. As well, you know, which ones you're putting against for the bigger points on the highlight reel. And yeah, you can replace people in the highlights reel. You know, that kind of little take that kind of thing. That's it. It's just a really good game and fairly short. It plays about an hour and it feels fairly deep for that kind of game. Interesting. So very distinct from Blood Bowl itself, even though it's set in the same universe, same sport. Yeah, totally. It's not at all like Blood Bowl because again, you're you're seeing the highlights of all the games over a week and basically doing player matchups. And of course, four people playing, they're vying to make their team look good. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, it's also criminally expensive if you look at the prices on the Geek, because it never came out again. Yeah, yeah, that'll yep. do it. I have that one printing, and there you go. Yep. Pity. Blood Bowl Team Manager. Mm-hmm. I think we're back to some real football now. Yeah, real football. Uh, 2014's <laughs> Masters of the Gridiron by Clay Dreslow and Connor Milliken from Sports Mogul Inc., so apparently Sports Mogul Inc. was well known for making baseball mogul and football mogul computer simulation games. Uh-huh. And in 2014, I guess, they decided to make a Kickstarter out of a, a card game, kind of based on some of the ways that they did the computer games. It's pretty simple when you get right down to it. Each player will be picking a team from the 2013 lineup from NFL teams. Which ones did you have, Brian? I got four teams with the Kickstarter. I got the Carolina Panthers, which is the team I was a fan of. Denver Broncos, who I think were also very good that year, and a couple other good teams mm-hmm. to try and keep things more or less competitive. They did release every team in that season, and I unfortunately, I don't think there were any follow-up seasons available. Yeah, there weren't. I checked. Okay, so each player will take whatever team they're picking, 
will draw three offensive player cards, three defensive player cards, and four playbook cards. And then they'll alternate taking turns making offensive drives. Essentially, you'll be picking from, if you're on the offense, for example, you'll pick from your offensive cards. And each of the different players has different stat lines based on both the performance of that player in real life and what type of play you're making, right? So, for example, you could make a, um, I don't know sports terms here, so I'm just (laughs) going to read off the cards here. If you're making a passing play, the quarterback would have like a passing stat and the receiver would have a receiving stat. So if you're making a passing play, you choose a player whose score in the appropriate set. So like if you're making a passing play, it could be passing or receiving. So basically you pick whichever of your players has the highest stat in that category and play them. Okay. And then and that's modified by the actual playbook play you make. Mm-hmm. So you might get a bonus if you pick to make a, you know, a rushing play or something like that. And then the defender will pick from their defense line who they're going to try and block it with, and they have to meet or exceed that to stop the play. If they stop the play, that's great. Then now they become the offensive player. If they don't stop the play, the other person scores points based off of whatever play they made. It might be a, like a field goal or it might be a, a touchdown. And then the pass plays to the other team becoming the offensive player. And you basically play through that until someone runs out of offensive cards. So very, very simple. Basically, right at its core, it's a skirmish game for two players based off of real-world stats, modified by the plays. Yeah, I quite like this one. I sort of wish it had caught on a little bit, because you do get, like, detailed stats on the individual players, but you're also playing at a very high, abstracted level. So each play of cards is like an entire drive in football, so it goes quickly. Fans of the NFL, as the teams were in 2013... Maybe see about picking some of these up. <laughs> yeah, there's some cool modifiers in it, too. Like, there's audible cards that kind of modify how some things play. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was interested in there's even, like, a kind of quasi-deck construction thing where you get, like, $120 million to play with, and you can pick whoever you want and pay each of the players have different values assigned to them. So you can buy $120 million worth of players yeah. to build your dream team. So that might be kind of interesting. And apparently, even the plays and the playbook cards were modified based off the different kind of personalities of the teams. Like, I think it's mm-hmm. the Broncos had a higher proportion of touchdown cards because they had a really strong offensive line right. the year yeah, 2013. Right. Did I hear you say that this was a Kickstarter in 2013? It was. Yeah, the huh. Kickstarter page is like a blast from the past. There's like almost no art. It's almost a wall of text. I'm like, oh, I remember when they used to look like this. <laughs> is it on GeoCities? <laughs> no, not so I'm assuming it came with a bunch of miniatures, zombies, <laughs> I think no. were in... No, in, Dex in, cards. Dex in cards. Vogue. That's all you got. In. No, uh, uh, they did have a section on future expansion where it said, uh, as the game grows, we'll include legendary greats from the 1970s through today. Like, oh, uh, well. Because, <laughs> uh, like, that would have been before the big Kickstarter Yeah, it was, it was a relatively projects. early one. Huh. Yeah. Masters of the Gridiron. Let's get back to good old baseball. We haven't had enough baseball on this list. <laughs> I'm talking about Bottom of the Ninth, produced by Dice Hate Me Games, developed by Daryl Lauder and Mike Mullins. Ultimately, you know, I've heard it said that baseball is ultimately the struggle of the pitcher versus the batter. And that's the real drama that takes place on the field. This is true. And so Bottom of the Ninth, represents that by it being the bottom of the ninth. For non-sports people, that's the end of the game. That's the end ah, of the game. Ah, okay, okay. 
and one side takes on the role of the pitcher who wants to win the final inning versus a group of batters who want to score points. Ultimately, it's a combination of a guessing game plus a dice, right? So like initially, as a pitcher, you kind of declare it whether you're pitching inside or outside and high or low. And the batter tries to guess that, right? Each pitcher has something that they're naturally better at. So they get a little bit of a discount on doing a specific kind of pitch. They don't have to spend stamina, which is a thing you spend if you don't match with what the batter thought you were going to do. Then you roll some dice and the die will determine, hey, was it inside the strike zone, outside the strike zone, or was it like uh, painting the corners, what they call it. And that really indicates as the hitter, whether you need to roll, you roll that die and a d6. And if you are outside the strike zone, you've got to roll above the number to not get a strike because you swung at the ball when it was a ball or otherwise miss it. Or you have to look below it when it's a strike, or you have to hit it exactly if it's a if it's a paint the corner. You go through a series of those, right, using the normal mechanisms of baseball, right? You have three outs in an inning, and you will accumulate strikes and balls, or potentially hit the ball and then run some number of bases, and that will determine if you score or not. It's a cute little game. I mean, it's very random, right? It has it's composed of a lot of dice. Yeah, it's guess good and roll good. Oh, Brian's two favorite things. Mm-hmm. Eh, I'm not I'm not a bad guesser, but uh, yeah. But yeah, and there's a computer version of it, which I think is pretty accurate to the, mm-hmm. the board game. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think my favorite thing about the digital implementation, it was made by Candelabra Games, who Dice Hate Me and... Handelabra, right? Handelabra. Right. What did I say? Candelabra. Candelabra. Oh, well, <laughs> Greater Than Games and Dice Hate Me Games have both done a lot of digital implementations of their games with that company, and they do a pretty good job of implementing them. Sentinel's Spirit Island was also done by them. Both are worth looking into. Very cool. That was bottom of the ninth. So I'm our token miniature skirmish game person, so I wanted to talk briefly about 2015's Guild Ball. This is from Steamforge Games, designed by Matt Hart and Richard Loxam. And this is sort of what if Blood Bowl but soccer. It's sort of a cross between the Blood Bowl kind of thing and a, a miniature skirmish game like Malifaux. There are basically, I think, like 15 or 20 different guilds in the game, each of which has a selection of players that you can build a team out of, and they all have their individual stats. It can be, depending on how your team is built, a game of kicking the ball around and getting in position to score or kicking your opponents around and getting them in the position where they can't fight back. You know, each guild obviously has their their own different tactics. Each guild can also have a mascot, which, depending on the thing, might be a dog or a cat or an octopus or a gorilla or whatever, which actually is part of the team and, and takes place in the play on the field. There's a resource called Momentum, and you have to assign it to your players in advance. So, you have to sort of decide where you think the action is going to be and who's going to have to take the most action. The miniatures are gorgeous. It's a little bit like Blood Bowl style ridiculous because sometimes like one of the guilds has a player that's just on a horse and now you have to deal with that. But it's a lot of fun. It was unfortunately discontinued a few years back. All the rules and stuff are still available and you can find a lot of the miniatures and stuff on eBay or you know on discount miniature market, that kind of thing. If you like sports games and you like kind of miniature skirmish stuff, I definitely recommend looking into it. Although, again, it is not an ongoing thing, so it might not be as easy to find opponents unless you find one for you. But I think it's definitely worth a look. 
That is Guild Ball. When we were talking about the ground rules of this one, we said that we weren't going to do fighting games. This next one is a wrestling game, but wrestling is not a fighting sport. It is a promotion sport. No, wrestling is opera. I mean, come on. Yes, exactly. Wrestling isn't fighting, it's opera, clearly. So this is Book It by Paul Lepore, developed by From Hammer Games. And, you know, if I had to compare it to something, I would compare it to Show Manager, ultimately. Mm. Right? Because uh-huh. you put together a promotion of wrestlers, and wrestlers come from a couple of different styles, in essence. When you're putting together your show, which will consist of a series of six matches, if the promotion styles of the wrestlers match, they do better together. If they have similar work ethics, so they have a work rating each of them, they'll put on a better show. And it's a series of rounds where you put on the best show you can and then get money to kind of power you for the next round, in essence. The game is extremely light. You can buy some cards that are like mess with your opponents or get some bonuses for yourself. Everything is very much dust in the wind, right? Like you'll keep any wrestlers you end up not using in a round, but you don't keep wrestlers that you do use. They're gone. Yep. So everything is very much dust in the wind and and off you go. (laughs) Into the grinder they go. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one was very slight. It was very slight. (laughs) And having played other games like it, it was fine. If you like, I'm not, see, I'm, I can't even say that, because, I don't know, Joe, as somebody who likes wrestling, how did you enjoy the game? This game has a lot of, oh, I recognize that wrestler that is put in a slightly different context, right? The game is a lot of that, ultimately. And so, if you're a big wrestling fan, I think there's a fair amount of like, oh man, that wrestler in that represent, you know, like there's a John Cena but it's a woman, right? And it's like, oh, it's mm-hmm. John Cena, but a woman. But it's not. <laughs> and her shirt says, surprise, I win. So <laughs> wrestling isn't wrestling. Like, it's very much like in the know crowd kind of stuff. I think if you weren't getting warm fuzzies from like recognizing wrestlers, the game is very slight. But if you are getting those, I don't think it's a bad game. I think it's certainly, it, it's a fun beer and pizza kind of game, right? For a group of wrestling fans to just kind of mess around before they watch WrestleMania for the evening, right? Something to do kind of before an event. I don't think it's an event itself, for sure. Yeah, I feel like some of the punny names in it are very reminiscent of, like, what Munchkin is to D&D. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can see that. So, you know, there's that. Mm-hmm. That said, if you were looking for a wrestling game, there is an older one, Avalon Hill, wrestling that I've heard is lovely. I just don't have it, don't know it but I've taken it on good advice. It's wonderful. I know I had also heard a lot of people talking about Rumble Slam, which is another kind of beer and pretzels miniatures wrestling match in the game, but it sounds like it's more of an actual fighting rather than the promotion side. So yeah. And then we finally have the one that started all this nonsense. Yeah. I was trying to post and trying to come up with some kind of way to justify talking about this game (laughs) with, you know, team management and that kind of, but unfortunately, we didn't know many team management enough games that had that feel of like a meta game that surrounded playing little fake games inside of it. As you see, the games I've been talking about so far of Slapshot and Phantoms of the Ice and even Blood Bowl Team Manager kind of have a weird abstraction to how they're approaching an entire season. I mean, a lot of the simulation games, you know, if you're playing Stratomatic Baseball or Status Pro or whatever, you're playing seasons an entire giant fantasy league stuff. But to distill those into one, you know, simple short game session, 
is a thing and challengers is uh the best at it in some ways mm-hmm. or not your mileage may vary my mileage varied considerably <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i love it so this is published by z-man and one more time games designed by johannes krenner and marcus uh i'm i failed that one and it's a competitive capture the flag tournament this is awesome because it'll do up to eight players and uh, not really grow in time with that number of players. So what happens is you're playing a full seven-round tournament, followed by a final. And the game itself is kind of simple. You start with the same group of players, and one of you is chosen to start with a flag, and he turns up a card, which will have a number on it, and some special powers, and takes the flag. Then the other person has to turn up a card and keep turning up cards until the sum of those cards is equal to or greater. Takes the flag and then basically squares it up so only the top number is visible. Then the other player has to beat that top number card. And this goes back and forth until your deck runs out. Or more importantly, when you discard people after they've played, you place them on the bench, sorted according to their exact card. If you overfill your bench, then, well, you also lose. The game comes with four little neoprene mats and four flag markers. So you're playing against an opponent. You're given an entire tournament schedule indicating which field you'll be playing on. And you do all of this basically simultaneously against another player while three other groups of people are playing at other fields. In between rounds, though, the important part is you get to do deck building. So you get to grab from these ever-increasing decks of more powerful cards, and you get to keep one or two cards and add them to your deck, and then trim out anything you don't want from your deck. So it is functionally a tiny little deck builder, except that instead of hands, you're just playing whatever your team happens to end up with. And so it's strictly a game of deck building and choosing and trying to match you know, is this good? How many of these do I need to trim out and try to deal with both having good cards, combos, because all of these cards have specific things they do, taking other cards out of the game, clearing up your bench for extra space, or just adding values based on cards that have already been played, that there is actually a strong deck combo thing going there. And all in a game that's 45 to 60 minutes and supports eight players at once. I think this is brilliant. It's very light. It's very fluffy. The fact that you're playing from a randomly shuffled deck of 10 cards or so means that the actual card play and matches are mostly just watching and watching your plans just turn to shit or do successfully. The finale of our last full game was incredible. I had a deck that was tailored on building up in strength over time versus this one guy who had a bunch of ghosts and high-powered cards. I was just taking out my cards, and we went down to the last card on the finale. With cheering and the kind of, yeah. (laughs) I think the problem that we ran into with this game is that, at least with 4, the actual play that is happening, the actual decision-making, is occurring in between the rounds. Right. The rounds themselves are a bit too random, I think, for most of our group's tastes. It was flip a card and see what happens, and if you're not good at flipping cards, then you're going to lose. I think it's the kind of game that, once you've played it once or twice, the random part goes extremely fast. Yeah. Because we were learning, like, it went kind of slow, but I think on even, like, a second playthrough, that random part would just be extremely fast. 
Right. And yeah. then you would just get to the good part of the game where you're making some decisions. Yeah. Because, like, this is definitely a game that is all about crafting combos. And for people who like crafting combos, I think they'll have a ton of fun with this game. If yeah. you don't like that, you'll probably be lukewarm on it at best. It feels somewhat similar to Millennium Blade, actually. In, in that was some my ways, thought. Right? It's like Millennium Blade Ultralight. And I think captures that in a much shorter... I mean, this is essentially a family game. This has been kind of shortlisted on some as a likely spiel des are. Mm-hmm. Since the time of recording, Challengers has in fact been nominated for the Kennerspiel des Jahres. And it's been reviewed really highly in the German magazines. So, you know, it's it's a family game. I don't know why I bounced off this one so hard, but I did. It's like, I get that there's all the strategy in finding the right combos and making the things work. But at the same time, I have like a handful of cards of which I am picking one. And I'm hoping that I will find things that will support that combo the next time I level up. I just, I don't know. I didn't feel like there was enough game there for me, but yeah. maybe I just don't. It's a it. case where learning what cards are available, and there are six different factions of cards. Mm-hmm. You leave one out each game okay, to vary the decks a bit, but I totally am seeing expansions for this on the way. Oh, they're nigh on infinite. Yeah. Really. Oh yeah, totally. They're much like Smash Up has an infinite number of expansions. This is oh, yeah, I in see some ways a lot of similar, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I'm glad you're digging it. It just was not for me. Yeah, no, it t- it does. It's weird because it does the actual gameplay. There's a weird disconnect between the actual strategy and the outcome. That doesn't bother me, but I know it bothers a lot of people. I want to play Millennium Blades. I know. You have played, right? I have. One time. Yeah. One time. And I was like, I love this game. I want to play it more. Yeah. Play? Yeah, I like it. We say that all the time for all the games. We should just get more games yeah. going. Millennium Blades is just long, and that's the. I mean, there's so much set up to it, and this like you can get to the table really quickly. And there's something to be said about a game that you can actually get to the table. I know, and I think it has a lot of that feel. So that I was just completely smitten with it. It's not as good. It's definitely not as deep, but I liked it a lot. Clearly. All right. Well. Well. Good. Yeah, so that is our list. Obviously, there's a ton more games out there we didn't have. We didn't even talk about things like Sabutio, which is a soccer sort of flicking game. That's as old as Tip Kick, and I do have yeah. it, and it's hard. It definitely inspired Ice Cool mm-hmm. with that weird flicking the weeble thing. I know it's really big in the UK, but I don't think it ever made it big over here. The thing that was totally fascinating to me as we go through this list is the discovery that there is not a single basketball game in the Board Game Geek Top 5,000. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is utterly fascinating. Yeah, I don't know why it doesn't lend itself as well as something like football or baseball. Yeah, Avalon Hill did a basketball game. I mean, there are definitely some out good. there. Yeah, I mean, Status Pro Basketball is a thing. Yeah, and, you know, I've got Basket. I think I still have a Basket, which is adorable. It's based on the old arcade basketball game, which you may have seen in really old retro arcades, which is adorable. Actually, it is quite a bit of fun. But And there's like, Frank, I'm hoping I can find video of someone playing Bocker Ball, which is a big table game that you used to have, which yeah. is basically a little hollow plastic soccer ball that is moved around by shooting ball bearings out of these little shoots onto the table. Uh, it's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> There are a bunch of dexterity soccer games. Mm-hmm. There actually are a number of really good abstract soccer games. 
It's like it's the most popular sport in the world or something. Yeah, totally. Street soccer by Quali is lovely. It's a little abstracted. It's a very Quali game. Uh, if you're familiar with that producer. The World Cup game and the World Cup card game oh, both wow. excellent for doing tournament stuff. We did forget to talk about that. I haven't played it in forever. Yeah, yeah I haven't played it in a while either. But basically, you each have a collection of teams. And you're sort of trying to get as many of your teams as possible through the group stages and then on into the finals. And you're sort of conserving your goal cards and figuring out what teams have a shot and what teams are just going to be sacrificed. And it's so weird because you can play on any team in the round and you're Mm -hmm. playing the entire World Cup. Yeah. And then once all the cards are played, you just resolve the round. It's kind of weird. That World Cup game is more fun than really had any right to be. You're not wrong. Oh, yeah. Totally. Agreed. uh, It was a good one. And then, of course, there are a bunch more out there that we haven't talked about. So if you have a favorite, please let us know what it is. You can comment on the AscentOfBoardGames.com website, come to our Facebook group, or comment on our Twitter feed. We even have a Discord that exists. There's not a lot of activity there, but there could be if you mm-hmm. wanted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and kick me for missing, you know, one of the ones I missed. You know, baseball highlights should have been there if I mm. knew it really well. But yeah. That's fair. I've heard many good things about that, but... Yeah, totally. I do love the story behind that, which is that the cybernetic pitchers are so good that regular human players just have to swing before the ball is pitched and hope that they hit it. <laughs> that was the highlights, like, 2049 Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, good stuff. But yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope that you will stay safe and enjoy gaming and or sports in a way that is safe and entertaining for you. Please leave us an iTunes review if you like this so we can find more listeners, and we will talk to you next month. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast, and thank you for listening. So that's electric baseball. Football. Electric football. Football. Also, yes, that's (laughs) electric football. That's pod racing.